2: As regular listeners know, we often open with a comic interlude, but I guess it's not an interlude, and not an interlude if we open with it. But anyway, we're not today because how can you do comedy about comedy? We're going to be talking about comedy. We're talking about late-night television really, and for some reason or other that means comedy, right? That what the two things are essentially equal. Although there's no real reason why that has to be the case. Maybe by the end of the show we'll know. We're going to talk about the phenomenon itself. We're going to begin by talking about possibly the great, greatest disruptor of the phenomenon. Uh, but as we go along here, I, I'm going to just uh, be introducing you to various people, including Laura Bradley, uh, a Hollywood Hollywood writer for VanityFair.com and something of an expert on uh, late-night television. Dave Itzkoff, a culture reporter for The New York Times, who writes frequently about film, television, and comedy. You'll also hear from John Max, uh, who is a seven-time uh, Emmy nominee who wrote for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. That's all coming later. We're going to begin, as I say, with a conversation. Conversation about the great disruptor uh, of uh, as many conventions of late night television as possible. That would be David Letterman. Our guest is Jason Zinneman. He's been with us before. He's been with us before to talk about David Letterman, uh, comedy critic for The New York Times and the author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, um, which I feel like it sort of goes with You know, the Al Franken book now, you know, Al Franken, giant of the Senate. Everybody has to be a giant or you're nothing. Um, All right, so Jason Zinneman, let's begin with this. Um, David Letterman, uh, you say, created a new comic vocabulary. Uh, What was that vocabulary?
3: Well, I think the the most – there's many examples. The most obvious one, I think, would be his use of uh, remotes, um, which is something that we kind of take for granted that you could use – you know, shoot out, out on the street and cut uh, interactions with ordinary people uh, into a comedy bit, which is something which has been the bread and butter of, say, The Daily Show for um, since the beginning. Um, and um, you know, it was on Conan, etc. Letterman really, and uh, you know, his collaborator Meryl Marco pioneered um, this form and and you know, did some of the funniest versions of these um, early on. Uh, actually, they they, they did. Uh, essentially, internet videos before the internet—they, um, you know, their their remotes would be would go viral if they started today. Um, so that's—I mean—I think that's one example. Um, you know, I think also just more broadly the kind of using um, real people um, instead of actors, which is something you see. Uh, All sorts of late night shows, you know, someone like Kimmel, who is highly influenced by Letterman, uh, is another example. Um, You know, there's even things on a micro level like, you know, when when Fallon does an interview and he um, has a bit where he inhales helium with a guest – uh, and the joke is, they you know they say this high pitched voice. Letterman did that almost invariably. If you see something really adventurous on late night television today, you can find an antecedent in late night with Letterman or his morning show. Um, James Corden did a show inside somebody's house. Letterman did that in his morning show. Um, you know he he really the 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 amount of which Letterman. Uh, created this new, this form um, through experimentation, you know, really can't be underestimated.
2: So I think the other thing that Letterman does is shift the tone uh, of late night comedy. Um, Let's listen to Tina Fey talk a little bit about that at the 2012 Kennedy Center Honors Speech.
4: By the time I left for college, late night had cemented its place as the epicenter of culture for anybody who wasn't a dope. Every single boy I went to college with was basically doing a 24 hour a day David Letterman impression. They would, whenever possible, use old timey phrases like program and goof and for the love of God, folks, don't try this at home. And it really worked to make me like them. And I'm not embarrassed to say that by graduation, I had been turned down by dozens of David Letterman
1: impersonators. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. Um, Tina, I was bringing it back to uh, rejections. Um, so it, it seems to me that one of the things, Jason, that David Letterman uh, did, and we've talked about this in the past, is puncture the facade that was really maintained by everybody, that this was all pretty good, that, that mass culture was pretty good. Uh, that the people coming on the show were pretty good, that they had been involved in movies that were pretty good, and that the show itself was pretty good. Um, that's all. Those are all conventions. I mean, it's sort of weird because late night television, you would think, would be this very chaotic bacchanalian Dionysian kind of place. But for the most part, it's a pretty. T- it has been a pretty tight-assed environment in which there has been a, a minimal amount uh, of experimentation and innovation. Uh, it's a, a white guy doing a stand-up. A white guy goes over to the desk. Uh, then there's. Uh, uh, some guests who who come out uh, there's a band uh, you know i mean there there's some derivation from that, but not very much. but one of the things that Letterman did it wasn't a structural innovation so much as a tonal innovation. He said, "You know what a lot of this stuff just isn't very good. that's kind of the joke how much it's
3: not very good. I know, what's your response to that? Uh, completely. And not only some of the stuff, it, everything is no good, right. Every, including <laughs> including me, including me. Yeah. It's all. It's all. I mean, this is. You know, there's a long tradition of you know young uh, artists you know point becoming famous or becoming uh through characters saying you know everything around you is phony right this is like a catcher in the rye <laughs> staple and letterman you know did that for television um you know the joke was about one of the things that's dated about letterman early letterman is that a lot of the butt of the jokes is that everyone knows television's terrible mm-hmm. we're now we're in this age where television has so much respect um but letterman i think you're right i think you know, he, more than anything else, he had a ironic style that he kind of mainstreamed. Um, and the subtext of it was, can you believe how, uh, you know, how ridiculous um, this movie star is who's promoting his film and how uh, absurd the artifice of Late Night is and how silly and uh, I am for, for doing this? Uh, you know, Stupid Pet is... Um, you know, essentially the old one of the oldest forms it goes. You know, putting an animal act is goes back to vaudeville. You know, it, it, there's nothing new about it. What's new about it is stupid. Uh, and I think uh, I interviewed Steve Martin for this book, and he said, "I don't think I'd want to see pet tricks, but stupid pet tricks. Mm-hmm. That's something different." And I think this gets to what you, that Tina Fey clip is. Um, by the way, I was most certainly one of those. Uh, guys who were doing a 24-hour David Letterman impression um, all through high school and college. Um, and uh, I, I think people didn't just... People's relationship with David Letterman was different than with their relationship with Dick Catted. They didn't just like David Letterman. Um, they saw him as something to imitate. They saw that he had a worldview. Um, uh, he really transcended talk shows in a way that I don't think exists today. And in that, that's why I, I, I wouldn't make this point about irony uh, uh, when you asked about his influence, because in some ways he's anomalous. I, I, I think that um, you don't see anyone today who is has an oppositional relationship with show business um, on network te- late-night network television today.
2: Right, and I think, first of all, let me say a couple of things. First of all, th- this is a terrific and interesting book, and all biographers have to answer the basic Kerry Grant question to Eva Marie Saint, how does a girl like you get to be a girl like you? So if you want to find out how David Letterman got to be a person like David Letterman, read this book. We're not going to have a lot of time to go into that right now, but if you want to know his life story, his childhood, um, familial forces that may have shaped that point of view, this is a, a terrific book for that. But, but Jason, to your point, to what you just said, I feel as though Le- Letterman is in some ways the last stop the last exit on the highway before we get to peak TV. What's really happened is, you know, when I was growing up, television was like not a good thing in, like uh, as hardware. You know, I mean, if you think about the the TV that Don Draper watches on Mad Men, it, it's a slightly smarter piece of furniture than a bureau, right? It looks, it's wood, it's got like this little screen in it, and nothing on it's all that good. And then we had portable TVs, where basically, which basically was just the TV without the furniture, and they had these antennae, and you'd have to kind of reposition them to get the signal. I watched Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show as a kid on something like that. It didn't really look very good. And and as a result, in some ways, it didn't have to be good. You could have a kind of shoulder-shrugging attitude towards the content that what that went on there. But, but as Letterman's coming really into his own, we're just a little ways from the point where televisions are going to get a lot better, cable's already there, so the signal's better. Te- television and HBO and and DVDs and things are coming. They're gonna that are going to make television kind of live up to a higher level. I think one reason that Letterman's anomalous is he's the last guy looking at this you know vast wasteland uh, as Newton Minow called it. Right, it, it, television isn't that yeah. good. Right, that he's right.
3: I uh, yes, I think. Uh, I would quibble a little bit with that. I think it's it's over, you know, we're so invested in this golden age of television narrative that we tend to ignore that there actually was some good television before this, including David Letterman. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, David Letterman and the late night wars inspired Larry Sanders show. Um, in uh, which which went on at the end of his NBC years, and you know, I don't think there's a better TV, better comedy uh, than Larry Sanders Show, uh, and so I mean that's just one example. Um, I, but I generally speaking, I think you're absolutely right that that um, you know, I mean, whether how television has changed is a different question. There's no question that the default assumption among smart people, you know, in the in the eight, in the early '80s. Was television was mostly crap, so that made it. You know, one thing that two of Letterman's head writers told me about what Letterman is good at is that he said he, he's best in opposition, in reaction, I should say, in reaction to something. So he needed something to react against. So one thing, for instance, which is also dated, is that New York is a crime-ridden hellhole. Right? New York is no longer a crime-ridden hellhole. It wasn't really as much in the '80s as it was in the '70s. But that way, he assumed the audience felt that and. That was a premise of a lot of his comedy. He also assumed the audience shared his feelings on television. Um, and he reflected in a lot of ways. I mean, why just he, the first image you saw in Late Night David with Letterman was not the host. It was Larry Bud Melman, a guy who's a bad actor um, who looked like he was on a cable access show reading, uh, basically doing a, a variation on the beginning of Frankenstein, a reference that surely no, but very few people are going to get. Uh, So it started like a bad cable access show. You know, why would it do that? Uh, And in a way, I think one of the things that was exciting about the show is by having guys like Larry, Bud Melman, and uh, there was an unpredictability to the show. It felt like something was wrong on the show. Uh, It wasn't like uh, this polished view of television show business that Tonight Show projected, and that in itself made it exciting.
2: Right. Although, well, I'll say it right here. So there there was a convention uh, on on late night television um, that, for example, a host could sit there at the desk with a piece of like pasteboard with like a newspaper clip stuck to it, the front of it and maybe some kind of little label to read on the back of it and and, and just hold it up to the camera for the camera to focus on. And I mean this is like horrible. It's a horrible television and it continued long after technology would have made it possible to present that same material in the same way. But it was, they were mired in that convention and and so much so that when Jay Leno moved to 10 PM, when he's on primetime television, he did this. And when you saw him doing it on primetime television, you thought, has this man lost his mind? I mean, talk about something about cable access. This is just like just horrible letterman seemed to be the only person who kind of understood that it was, kind of horrible and that he would continue to do it because, in fact, it, it was less than what television was capable of doing.
3: I think I mean, I think he I think the the, the thing about uh, telling all your jokes through a kind of persona that's so highly ironic is that you can tell a bad joke, you can do something that's unpolished, you can do something that doesn't work and it still pays off. But, um, but I think it's also that-
2: because it's underscored by a certain amount of self-loathing, too. I want to I make sure you talk a little bit about this, that Letterman, did, he also fractured the comedy of late night television. He was often not nice to his guests. You deal a lot with that in the book, the treatment of Pia Zadora, what Cher had to say with him. These were often women guests. And it seems to me that the defense... Of Letterman, or the 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 way one defends Letterman against all of this stuff, is it 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 seems to occur within a larger context of self-loathing. He's hard on everybody, but maybe hardest on himself.
3: I think that's true, and I would I would take it. I would be broader about it. I would say that um, the the critique of this ironic point of view is that that it 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 uh, doesn't allow you to reveal yourself. Um, but Letterman disproved that. Um, after Letterman was the most revealing of television hosts, which is bizarre considering how guarded and repressed he was. But when he was didn't like somebody, you could tell. When he had contempt for something, you could tell. You often to- could tell through the subtext or through the uh, you know through sort of a, a, a simmering hostility as it showed up with a lot of these guests. But he was a had a, all sorts of things that he was irritated by and things that he liked, and, you know, his television show in a weird way kind of tracked his mood. Um, I mean, I argue in the book that even by, like, the, the late 80s and early 90s, it almost it anticipated reality television, that he had these bits, you know, with a Meg Parsant where he would talk to this woman across the street, just some mundane conversations where he transforms, you know, these interactions with ordinary people into kind of this sort of fascinating soap opera. Um, so, I mean, I think one of his great legacies is turning the late night talk show into uh, revelatory art.
2: Um, one of the things that you deal with in the book, it's something that I'd forgotten about if I ever knew, is that, you know, as Letterman began to emerge, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly understood as... This archangel of irony, this uh, this guy whose withering scorn for everything around him animated his comedy in a very specific way. Uh, there were people who really liked it. A lot of them were people like you and me. Um, then there were people who didn't like it. One of them, oddly enough, was David Foster Wallace, uh, the now deceased uh, novelist, essayist, and, and short story writer, um, who was no stranger to and a vast trafficker in irony himself. Something... I, I probably the things that bother us most in other people generally are things that we suspect lie somewhere in ourselves. So he 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 was really troubled by David Letterman. Say some more about this, Jason.
3: Yeah, that was a moment early in the process when I knew that that there this there, there was a you know Letterman was worthy of a book. That here you have you know arguably the greatest uh, writer of his generation, and his first published short story in a major magazine was a from the point of view of an actress going on, David Letterman, um, who was terrified. You know, it sort of it's almost like a horror story where David Letterman's the monster. Um and one, that gives you a sense of whether his reputation for how he dealt with guests. But two, there were the broader point is that, you know, Foster Walsh was a writer who used irony and then he had kind of a reaction against it. And, you know, was one of these people who made this case that irony can be a a prison, a trap. It could prevent engagement and emotional expression. And he used Letterman as sort of symptomatic of of this big strain in in our culture. Um, And, you know, as I say, I I kind of, uh, I I think he didn't, he hated Letterman in the way that only somebody who used to love him could. Um, And, um, you know, I respond to it in the book. I think he has a smart critique, but I disagree with it. Um, you know, one of the things that you you touched on is how Letterman, you know, wasn't afraid to be unlikable. Um, and I, you know I would compare it again to Golden Age of TV, where we make this big deal about these shows, you know, starting with sopranos, et cetera, who uh, started to have protagonists that you didn't necessarily like, or that part of what was interesting about them is that once some days you did like them, some days you didn't. Um, and look at the talk show form in that climate. We've had basically the entire history of the talk show, you've had, Host who tried to be likable. You've had a series of different kinds of likable protagonists. You know, I think from a narrative point of view, that's pretty boring. Letterman comes along and isn't afraid to be uh, unlikable, and and in, in the and it demonstrates itself in in his hostility sometimes to these guests. And you know, you could you could not like him, you could feel different ways, but it, it makes for a much more compelling personality uh, character on screen. Um, so. Um, I mean, I think Foster Wallace's particular issue was was that, and this is which is that Letterman back then was the 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 king of sort of counterculture hip uh, young uh, comedy. You know, the and this is during the Reagan era, right? Mm-hmm. Where um you'd think those people would have a very political point of view, you know a left- wing political point of view. And I think, you know, there was one school of thought that thought, It's it's sort of – Vladimir back then didn't have a very overt politics. He sort of became kind of the closet as a liberal later on, but back then he didn't. And I think that was part of this, that it was a sense that this ironic prism prevented him from expressing uh, a a political point of view. And if if anything, it uh, allowed people to kind of be detached and not engaged in the world uh, in a way that was important.
2: We're talking to Jason Zinneman. His book is Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Um, there's so much that I would like to ask you. Uh, time is going to keep me reined in a little bit. But I do want to ask you a little bit about the process. I mean, you eventually got to sit down with David Letterman. By the time you did this, you had done a better job of cataloging his life than he had, right? You'd talk to, you talked to—you were in touch with people from his past that he hadn't been in touch to with in, in a long time. And then there is that whole question about— writing a biography that's not an authorized biography, you know, what is going to be the attitude of the subject? So uh, describe a little bit what it's like to be in the presence of this person who you by now knew so well.
3: I mean, I was I was worried because I had to get so much accomplished in a short period of time. And I mean, it all ended up working out by accident perfectly in that I wasn't sure I was going to get talk to him. So because of that, I reported the hell out of his life and went to Indiana, went to L.A., talked to people, as you say. I mean, by the time I eventually sat down with him, um, you know, it was like a This Is Your Life episode. I mean, you know, he, you know, I I had talked to old students and I was reminding him of stories he had forgotten. Um, And so it wasn't a fishing expedition. Um, And, you know, sometimes I've read interviews where Letterman's been a little prickly, so I was a little – you know, I was a little anxious about that. But he actually was a fantastic interview. Uh, you know, it had been, I think, nine months since his show was over. So I think he was happy to talk about it. And he was, um, you know, didn't dodge a single question. And we talked about everything. Um, and, well, the interview was only supposed to be for, go for an hour. We went four, and I probably could have gone a lot longer if I hadn't prepared for a one-hour interview. Um, but, uh, but it was, I think, talking to him at the towards the end of the process and also it being unauthorized. Um, you know, I think it was a good thing. Um, I mean, I think it's the best of both worlds: is that I had access to him. Um, so I think that really, I really had to kind of rewrite a lot of the book once I talked to him, and I tried to, um, you know, uh, put 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 get more of his voice in. At the same time, I don't know. I maybe I have a prejudice towards authorized books, but when I just hear something's authorized, I I, I get a little skeptical that it's that it's going to be bland. Yes, um, As so, well you might.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, right. I mean. So we
2: you know, we know. We knew at minimum two David Letterman's, probably more, but let's just oversimplify it and say we knew the David Letterman, uh, the one that we've been describing a lot, who was v- funny uh, with a certain amount of ironic detachment from, if not contempt, for the conventions of show business. Then, starting sometime around the turn of the century, m- century, we met this other guy. We met this other guy who reacted a certain way to the r- events of 9-11 and to his heart attack, a- and maybe even reacted a little reflectively as he watched the uh, the Conan O'Brien. Jay Leno drama unfold. It was very interesting to listen to Letterman just kind of sit at his desk and making no particular attempt to be funny. Analyze that on a nightly basis. Um, as you spoke to him, I'm assuming that this second person, the person who kind of held uh, Dan Rather's hand and said, take care of yourself after 9-11 and who uh, cried or was on the brink of tears in introducing his own medical team after his heart attack, that that's, that's a real person. Was that the person that you sat down to talk
3: with? It's an interesting question. I think I would say yes, but there's that that first version wasn't a fake. I mean mm. that that <laughs> version. There's also some of that too. Uh, you know, I, I sort of you know end the book on a kind of a, an ironic jab he took at Jay Leno. Um, this is in my interview with him, <laughs> just to to show that that version is still around. Um, and um, but. Uh, you know, I think there was in the the late period Letterman, if you were to make the argument for late period Letterman, that he sort of used, he leveraged this reputation as this detached, ironic critic who's always calling, you know, thing things phony or whatever, out to do something which was also really surprising, um, which was be emotional. Um, you know, his reaction to 9-11 was more galvanizing than any other talk show host. Um, you know after his heart after his heart surgery you know he was incredibly vulnerable in a way that surprised people and and you know famously after his blackmail attempt um, you know there's been so many press conferences where we've seen politicians uh, confess to affairs um, it, none have been uh, like Letterman's monologue. Um, so you know I think his, uh, and also, in his, uh he didn't have as much hostility towards his guests, but he was willing to have long conversations, um, which, you know, is a little bit of a lost art on late night television. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the strength of his show shifted. Um, and I think T- Letterman today is more interested in that version. You know, I think he is a very thoughtful, cerebral guy. Um, I still don't think he's a kind of gushing sentimental guy um, but I think you know fatherhood has definitely changed him and he, I think he is sentimental about that um, and you know when I asked about his things like legacy, you know he said you know he doesn't the, to the extent that he cares about his legacy it has to do with his son mm-hmm. um, and you know I, I think that that was another major turning point um, is, is becoming a father and you saw that on the show too he would you know uh, if I, he would talk about children and parenting, uh you know, ad nauseum. Okay, uh, I'm, so
2: Jason, sure. well, I want to take a break here. We want to get to the rest of Late Night, so we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the state of Late Night post-Letterman after this.
0: Letterman, wouldn't it be right If I could be Your favorite TV personality Wouldn't it be sweet If I could lock you to sleep it's all we-
2: We're talking about late-night television, which means late-night comedy, with Jason Zinneman, comedy critic for The New York Times, author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Also, Laura Bradley, Hollywood writer for VanityFair.com. Uh, Dave Itzkoff, the culture reporter for The New York Times, who writes frequently about comedy as well as film and television. Uh, a little bit later, you'll hear from a writer for one of the um, older late night comedy shows. Um, but Laura, I want to begin with you. Uh, you've been sitting there patiently or maybe not patiently. Uh, but you heard me say, I think at the beginning, that in some ways, late night television hasn't really been a crucible of innovation, at least formally, right? That the white guy comes out, there's a band, the white guy does a monologue, walks over to a desk, says a few more things, then the guests start to come out. That, to a, an astonishing degree, <laughs> this Since the time of Jack Parr, this hasn't really changed very much. Am I wrong about this? Is Are there ways in which I'm not giving enough credit?
4: No. I mean, I think change on late night, as with any kind of institution, just tends to be slow moving. So I think more than anything, you'll see people tweaking the formula slowly or incrementally um, rather than doing something completely revolutionary. I mean, I think you know if you looked at somebody like Jack Parr and then you came over and looked at what... You know, Stephen Colbert is doing. I don't think, you know, I think that you would see some stark differences. It's just how many decades did that take? It just doesn't happen immediately.
2: Um, As you look around, I mean, who, who does strike you, Laura, as someone who in this format, either at 11.30 or 12.30 uh, Eastern time, is in fact doing something different?
4: I mean, again, I think Colbert is doing something very different uh, from what Letterman did and also what he did on his old show. I think there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of people wondering when he took over on Late Show exactly what that would look like considering he had been playing a character and there was a lot of talk about what's the real Stephen Colbert like? Do people really want to see the real Stephen Colbert? And even as the show sort of launched, people started wondering whether the real Colbert was really a character people were interested in. It took a little while, like any show, it took a while for him to find his groove. But I think once he did, he's been doing something really interesting in the sense that, I mean, I don't think, he's not really a direct character Imitator of Jon Stewart, in that I think he's a lot more sort of prankish and bemused. So I think he's sort of struck a tone that is a happy medium between sort of these outlook based shows that you'll see more on Comedy Central and the more traditional late night venue. Uh, so I think he's sort of done a really good job of blending the two. And then I think Corden is actually also doing some really interesting stuff. Not, you know, I just think that he's taken sort of that viral format and really made it his own. Right. which I think is part of what's been stressing Jimmy Fallon and his team out, I would think, so much. is just that, you know, you've got Stephen Colbert killing it over here with the politics, which is what a lot of people really want to hear. And then on that sort of viral variety show angle that he's been doing so well on Tonight Show and continues to do, you've now got Corden kind of edging in on his territory with these games that have just taken off. I mean, he's got two... Uh, vi- two segments like Carpool Karaoke and Drop the Mic that are now getting their own spin off TV shows.
2: That's amazing. And- we'll come back to uh, Car- Carpool Karaoke in just a second, but uh, I want to ask Dave Iskoff to chime in on this too. So I would be, Dave, in the group that disagrees a little bit with Laura. I, I personally find Stephen Colbert, I mean, obviously a fabulously talented guy, but to, to me, there's a real fall off from the old show to this one that the, the old show managed to have even in. At that level of imposture, still managed to have this very saturnine attitude towards a lot of things that I have saturnine and dark attitudes towards. I feel as though this is a showbiz show, you know, in 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 a way that I I'm uncomfortable with. I don't know. Am I, am I not watching Colbert closely enough? <laughs>
1: no i I mean I think you know I think they're, they're, I think certainly if you paid attention over the course of uh, you know its first year and a little bit longer, I think it was trying to sort of figure out you know if it could have its cake and eat it too, and it really, I think was trying to be a kind of uh, at least at first a, a big tent uh show, I mean right from the the outset, I mean the very first guests that they announced. I mean, this is a really place it in time. But you know, it was George Clooney and Jeb Bush were the guests on its very first broadcast, and that was something of a signal at the time that oh, you know, uh, you know, Stephen want, Stephen Colbert, the human being, not the character, wants to you know have people on the show that maybe he couldn't really get to in character on the Comedy Central program. Uh, and you know, and, and give them, you know, give them a, a more of a platform to be themselves, and not uh, immediately come at them with uh, you know questions that were a little bit uh, snarky or were going to try to upend them. And uh, you know, they saw the uh, the result of that to a certain extent. That the, the at, at first, at least, the CBS show really was not uh, a breakout, and uh, you know, was was uh, you know, certainly from a rating standpoint losing. Uh, You know, pretty consistently to Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show. Uh, And, you know, there have been a couple of uh, inversions uh, since then. I mean, on the one hand, the show itself, I think uh, Colbert's show, has decided to, you know, make a more pointed decision to, you know, to let its… Uh, You know, let its politics hang out and let you know exactly how it feels about a lot of things, even if that's going to come at the cost of certain types of guests that they might be able to book. Uh, Obviously, you can't underestimate what has happened in the sort of cultural landscape as a result of the 2016 election and and just what a viewer kind of wants from a late-night show now, wants a little bit of that catharsis. And to a certain extent, uh, you know, viewers are embracing that. There's a certain type of viewer that wants to see him – Make fun of whatever the sort of latest, you know, Trump debacle of the day is and, uh, that, I think that kind of strategy has been very productive for them.
2: All right. Actually, well, let's talk a little bit about that, about Colbert letting everything hang out. So one of the other things Colbert does very well or nearly are layers, uh, layers of persona on the old show. Um, So let's talk about the time uh, recently that he got in a certain amount of trouble. I don't know how much trouble you can really get into. But so um, here he is. And I think I should set this up, which is that one of the things that he's doing here is saying uh, that he's very angry at President Trump for the way President Trump treated John Dickerson, who who Colbert sees or at least claims to see as part of a CBS confraternity. And he's just not going to put up with that. So he's going to adopt a much more street gangsta per- persona in attacking Trump. And here's what he says. Mr. Trump, your presidency. I love your presidency. I call it disgrace the nation. You're not the POTUS. You're the blotus. You're the glutton with the button. You're a regular gorge, Washington. You're the presidents, but you're turning into a real prictator. <laughs> Sir, you attract more skinheads than free Rogaine. You have more people marching against you than cancer. You talk like a sign language gorilla who got hit in the head. In fact, the only thing your mouth is good for is being Vladimir Putin's <laughs> holster. Your <a> presidential <laughs> library. Your so, Laura, maybe you can start out here. So this is Colbert. I don't know. This is a joke that maybe not everybody got, right? This wasn't Colbert talking as Colbert. It was Colbert talking in a slightly different persona.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think he definitely adopted a persona. As I was watching it for the first time, it sort of made me think of the movie Hook, where they're all sitting around the table slinging insults at each other, Um He usually goes for, you know, more intellectual jabs. Uh, He points at hypocrisy a lot. So this, there's just the sort of wordplay and the name calling. It was something very different. And I think you're right when you say that you sort of he switched into a different persona when he did that. It was sort of a schoolyard taunt more than anything, which is why I find it so interesting that this is what ruffled so many feathers. He's literally just name calling. There's nothing there's nothing more to it. He said far more terrible things about Trump. It just, you know, they were based in an intellectual argument rather than simple insults. But, of course, this is what took off.
2: Right. By the way, don't use hook references. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like The Godfather, where everybody goes, Oh, yeah, that scene in Hook. Um, well, Jason Zinneman, there is the f- a fundamental bargain, right, that late night television strikes or struck for decades with its viewers, which is we will send you off to Sleepy Land, kind of chuckling and giggling. Maybe you've even got the TV in the bedroom or, or what. We're not going to really hit you too hard with stuff. You know, Carson's going to do Karnak, you know, or Letterman's going to do Stupid Petrix, or So, in, in a way, one of the things Colbert is playing playing around with is, like, how far can you stretch that arrangement? What's your take on that, Jason?
3: Well, I mean, two quick points. One is that late-night television isn't on a late night anymore. You know, now people watch it, uh, a lot of people watch it in the morning. People watch it, you know, in viral videos. So, you know, that whole dynamic of, you know, watching something gentle before you go into bed is is, uh, not the case anymore. The second thing, I think that clip... You know, what, what What you didn't play right before that clip, he says, you know, John Trump was disrespectful to John Dickerson, and he reacted, John Dickerson did, as a gentleman, because he's a journalist, a respected journalist. I am not. I can be crude and rude, essentially, uh, because I'm a comedian, and here it is. So that so he very explicitly said, you know, I'm adopting a different persona than my usual one, and that's the context that the tone of all that uh you know, comes in. Um, I also think that, you know, I think he is doing some different things. I mean, look at this week. He's doing this thing, Russia Week. Um, usually, uh, when a host would goes to a different city, first of all, it's just interesting that he's not just talking about politics. He's realizing this Russia is the biggest story and he's incorporating into his show in a very organic way. And he's not doing what most hosts would do, which would be let's do a show in Russia. He's doing his normal show and then using clips and remote bits from Russia each night in a way that, you know, it's a subtle formal difference, but um, is actually something diff- new. Um, and different than what, you know, Kimmel Letterman did you know, when you, when you went, went abroad. And I think it's actually working really well. I mean, it, I, I want to tune in every night to see what he's going to do in Russia. But he does it first. He starts off with a normal monologue. So he makes me watch his, his monologue, which is his normal topical monologue. And then, he, you know, after the commercial, he's got this remote thing, which I'm really excited to see.
2: So, Dave Itzkoff, I have this theory that um, one of the things that's going to happen with late night television, it's already happening, is that the people who host these shows have to be more talented than they used to be. Uh, it used to be that you could be kind of affable and you could be sort of an above average, slightly above average comedian, and that was probably going to be enough. But people expect more from television these days, you know, so, so-called peak TV. Their television sets are better to look at, and they want to see somebody like James Corden, who's this fabulous actor who could carry a Broadway show, who can sing Jimmy Fallon I mean I'm not a big Jimmy Fallon fan but I mean he can come out and do a dead on Bob Dylan or Neil Young impersonation I mean he's got he's got a lot of abilities even Colbert I mean I we've seen Colbert do Sondheim you know he did a little thing uh, in a version of of company that that, and Colbert is you know was a fairly gifted comic actor going into all this stuff I'm wondering if you agree that somehow or other the bar has been raised a little bit on what your skill set has to be in order to entertain people this way Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, forgive me. I know you're the host, and I should be gracious to you. But no, no, you don't I, have to. Do. I, I have to disagree. I mean, I think. I, I mean, if you go all the way back to, you know, Steve Allen was a prodigiously uh, talented guy, and Johnny Carson. I mean, he was the reason he worked so well on the Tonight Show. I mean, he was a guy that they just they could not figure out what to do with him elsewhere on TV because he had so many abilities and talents, and he didn't he didn't fit the mold of a game show host or a daytime host. It was really they had to give these guys formats that could really allow them to do just about anything because they were so multifaceted and you know there was uh, I think that maybe during the period when it was just the two guys going head to head the Jay versus Dave era and even those guys are, I think were more comprehensive than perhaps we give them credit for but that was that was a period of, of uh, you know uh, getting in the trenches and really figuring out what your show was that made you different from the other guy and I think maybe that's more the period that we're in now where it, there is so much uh, you know competition even if it's friendly or not so friendly uh, but that there's just so many choices and options for people that uh, you just you have to have a strong take. It doesn't mean you have it has to be a political one, but you have to just really be clear about what the identity of your particular show is. That's what is going to uh, help you break through the clutter, and that ultimately has to emanate uh, from from the host. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say the hosts have suddenly you know, suddenly been reawakened in them or impressed upon them that they have to do lots of things. I think, I think that's been part of the long tradition of the uh, institution.
2: All right, let's go. We're going to take a break here, but let's go into the break with, um, uh, for those of you who haven't ever seen it, uh, James Corden doing a, car- a carpool karaoke. I believe he's doing it with Bruno Mars. So when you're on tour, what's your rider? What do you ask for in your dressing room? What do I want in my dressing room? Mm-hmm.
3: Some booze, some water,
4: yeah. wet wipes. That's it. Wine and wet wipes. That's it. Because if I'm going home with just a bottle of wine and some wet wipes, that is a
2: tragic evening for me, <laughs> which ends with me crying. <laughs> All Bruno Mars needs is some wine and some wet
3: wipes. That's the next album.
2: Wine and wet wipes. <gasps> wine and wet wipes. It's <gasps> a big
3: album right? coming up now. It sounds massive. Pop the cork and wipe down. Pop the cork and wipe down. Ragat. Pop the cork and wipe down. Shanda Pop the cork and wipe down. Wait a minute.
4: Wipe my face. Put some liquor with it. Oh, look, I've just done it. I've just done it. That's huge. Done.
0: Wipe my face. Put some liquor with it. This is that ice cold Michelle fights for that white gold. This one for them hood girls. I'm so pretty, so pretty. I'm too high dance police and a fireman too. Hot.
4: Hot. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Carmen Baskoff and sincere apologies to Amanda Fish and Bill Curry. We ran out of time. We'll reschedule them for a future episode on tomorrow's show The Fate of Antiquities.
3: And now, Back to Colin.
2: All right. So I made a, a couple of executive decisions. We have this a terrific interview with John Max, a seven-time Emmy nominee who wrote for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. But we also have these fa- fabulous guests here. Time is limited. I'm going to make that a web extra. So WNPR.org, The Colin McEnroe Show. So go to WNPR.org slash Colin. You can find this show. We'll embed... Uh, that uh, that John Max conversation uh, as a web extra. One thing I also quickly want to say, and Jason would probably agree with me about this. Jason Zinneman, author of Letterman: The Last Giant of Late Night. Somebody tweeted this, and they're absolutely right. Many of the things that are innovative about David Letterman were innovative about Steve Allen many decades before that. Uh, and Letterman would be, I think, the first to say that as well. You know, man on the street kind of stuff, getting outside the studio. Uh, so a nod to Steve Allen. He also wrote songs. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Donald Trump, and maybe the place to begin uh, with the big orange elephant in the room uh, is in 1987. Uh, This is one of the first appearances uh, on Late Night with David Letterman of a certain Donald Trump. And, and what about the, uh, are, are people trying to draft you to run for a president up in New Hampshire?
0: Well, I guess a lot of people want to see this country, uh, it's, it's a shame what's happening. Japan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, they're all, everybody's taking advantage of the United States. People know that if certain people are running a country, that it won't happen. I mean, when you look at Japan, not paying for the defense, we're defending Japan. We're losing billions and billions of dollars. We're fighting for AIDS help and for farmers and for this and that. And it's a shame. And, and the Japanese folks, who I respect greatly, but they're not, they're not treating us fairly they're really not treating us fairly kuwait saudi arabia they're not paying us anything for the services we're rendering and i think it's a disgrace and i think people look at certain people and maybe me if that if i were in a position this country believe me would not be Ripped off like it is, and it, it is just being ripped off so badly by our so-called allies. Yeah. So, so that that's a pretty uh, uh, strong statement. So now, are you I saying think it's strong? I think it's fair. And by the way, I have tremendous respect for the Japanese. I have trem- I do a lot of business with the Japanese, and they smile about it too. They okay. know it. The country is losing billions and billions of dollars to Japan, and we can't afford to lose. And it's a shame. It's but a so shame now, are you after. are you saying this by way of indicating that you could do it better, and you do intend to run for president at some no, point? No, I'm not going to run for president.
2: Okay, that was 30 years ago. Four years before Hook came out, just to help you, uh, if that's a good reference point for you. So, uh, Jason Zinneman, real quick, I want to hear all the guests a little bit about sort of the challenges of the Trump era. But what was the relationship between Letterman and Trump? What did Letterman do for or against Trump?
3: They have a long, long history. Um, And, uh, I mean, I've I've been working on a piece on this actually right now. And, and you you know, it it evolved. I mean, actually, the first time he was on was in 85, where Letterman brought a— a tourist to Trump Tower, and Trump saw. You know, he never he just randomly. Trump, Trump brought him into his office, and they had a whole bit. Um, he was a regular feature on like a kind of eccentric New York character for a long time, and then there was a shift in about I think eight, 2008 2000, uh, where, where he became started being more kind of an overtly political figure, uh, and a lot of the you 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 I mean it's remarkable when you hear the same themes that was. You know, campaign yes. that you know just just replaced Japan with China, um, uh, and you know y- you have uh, the current campaign. Uh, he's been saying the same things, um, but he was he was getting a huge applause lines uh, in a, a for it, it, you know on uh, in a late show New York, you know prop mainstream if not liberal audience with his basically current pitch about trade in two thousand and eight. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, that was happening anywhere else besides Letterman. So it was a he was a very important. Letterman played a big role in uh, giving him a form. So did Howard Stern.
2: Yes, and, um, and a little bit Don Imus too. So Laura Bradley. Um, you know, Everybody has to deal with the challenge of Trump. And one of the reasons that Trump is different, he's a, he's, an ex, he's an exception in a, lot of, in a lot of ways to the political continuum. Uh, so we, we haven't mentioned the name Seth Meyers. Uh, he's kind of d- done these kind long of long-form, closer-look versions of things having to do with the Trump administration. I mean, I don't know. Do you want to quickly sort of say how you think late night has changed as a result of— maybe the the tone of the country changing?
4: Well, I think, first of all, just there were so many shows that popped up right as we sort of edged into election season. And so I think as the campaign trail was taking form, so were a lot of these shows. So I think that's played a part in which shows have sort of gained traction and which haven't. I think the other thing that's interesting about how Trump has sort of affected the way late night shows run or at least the way they resonate is that I think the monologue is once again just a much bigger deal than it had necessarily been in recent years um when Jimmy Fallon took over at Tonight Show he sort of de-emphasized the monologue which as we saw was a really good move for him he was ruling in the ratings for so long because I think the country was in the mood for that the fun and games were you know what people wanted to watch and I think there's still a lot of room for that but at the same time we also want to see somebody who can take the political landscape and help us digest it at the end of every day or in the case of a lot of people in the morning when they're on YouTube watching it in the train or wherever. Yeah. And so the, I think.
2: Well, and, and, sorry, and yeah, Dave, uh, we're just about of time out of time here, but David's Scott. So Fallon paid a price for that ultimately or, or did he pay a price? I mean, ultimately, there was the, there was a sharp pivot and people said, well, Fallon is lightweight. He's cream puff. Uh, he's sort of not the guy we need right now.
1: Well, I mean, I think there was certainly the effect of him actually having Trump on the show, uh, very, you know, really at the at the heated you know apex of the campaign and conducting, you know, I think what a lot of people uh, could very easily interpret as a uh, a very softball interview with uh, you know then then candidate Trump, and I think that put people it put things in, in very sort of sharp relief. Uh, you know, there were people who were just deeply upset by you know even how he'd approached the interview in the per- in the first place. And I think there's definitely been a kind of... uh, you know, a long tail effect in the sense of, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the big the big shift in momentum has come post uh, inauguration in terms of, uh, you know, Colbert, uh, you know, regaining, uh, you know, his ratings lead. And, you know, that that does certainly have to do in part with people having an appetite for more pointed political humor. And that's something that, uh, you know, Colbert has embraced and Fallon is, uh, you know, just as pointedly sort of said, that's not uh, what we do here.
2: And yeah, I guess we don't really have time for a, a new topic here. all. I, I do feel as though one thing that we could say, maybe, Laura, you could say it really quickly. I mean, one difference is people just have a lot of options right now. I mean, you, it's like the Cheesecake Factory menu, menu, right? You can order what you need.
4: Yeah, I mean, definitely. You're having more and more options. And the other thing is that there are more and more shows coming. So I think the other interesting thing is seeing what's on the horizon as far as that goes.
2: And Anything we should look for that you know about?
4: Uh, Robin Thede has a show. And then I'm really curious to see whether Francesca Ramsey's show gets picked up, just because I think she's really... Really funny and smart.
2: Hmm. All right. So, late night will uh, keep on changing. Meanwhile, I have to thank all these great people. Jason, Jason Zinneman, comedy critic for the New York Times, author of Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Laura Bradley is a Hollywood writer for VanityFair.com; David Skoff, culture reporter for the New York Times. Uh, also, you can uh, go online, WNPR.org, backslash, no, just slash Colin, or backslash, slash, whatever. Just slash away and, until you find this. And we will put up our interview with John Max. John Max is. Uh, Uh, very effective in sketching out the fact that many of us, when we watch Donald Trump talk, think we're all going to die. So how do you make that funny? How do you make it funny at 1130 when people are getting ready for bed? John and I talk about that. We'll make that audio available to you at uh, wnpr.org slash Colin.
0: The late night TV show. The late night TV. The lovely girls, lovely boys. The lovely lovely. The lovely girls, lovely boys. On the late night TV. Lovely girls, lovely boys. Lovely lovely. Lovely girls, lovely boys. On the late night TV show.
3: The late night TV show select my TV.